Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And today, we are joined by a very special guest. So Dr. Tracy Canada is a sociocultural anthropologist whose ethnographic research uses sport to theorize race, kinship, and care. Oh, sorry. Theorize race, kinship, and care, gender, and the performing body. Her work focuses on the lived experiences of black football players. We are both really looking forward to learning about your work, so let's dive right in. I was going to try to make a football joke. Can't do it. <laughs> but you had none. I had none. You had none. <laughs> let's hut, hut, hike <laughs> right on in. What first got you interested in anthropology, Tracy, and what has your trajectory been from then till now? Uh, sure, I can totally answer that. But first, thank y'all for having me. I'm very excited to yeah. be here. Um, this is such a fun podcast. And I do have to plug it and say that I um, there are two specific episodes that I use in my classes. So I do really appreciate this podcast and what y'all are doing. Oh, um, so yay, thanks for the first question. Um, because it's a question that I, I really like to answer. Um, because I think it, it to me, it, it highlights what the experience is to be a black anthropologist, um, because the only reason that I know anything about anthropology is because of Lee Baker, um, who is ah. a historian of the discipline. Um, he's been at Duke forever, but I think like about 25 years, but like forever. Um, and I was an undergrad at Duke. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life at all. Um, and the story that I tell is that the, the two Lees are the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing because my advisor at the time, her name was also Lee, um, and she was a dean and she would listen to me come into her office and tell her, you know, what I was interested in and what I wanted to do and how I was thinking about the world, but also how I had no idea how to mobilize any of that. And so one day she walked me down the hall to meet one of her colleagues who was Lee Baker because he was a dean at the time as well. Um, and she was like, I think he's doing something that you might be interested in. I don't really know, but you also talk to each other. Um, and so Lee Baker invited me into um, his classroom. Um, so I took anthropology of race with him. And he is a historian of the discipline. So the way that he tells the story of the way that anthropology and anthropologists are both um, very instrumental in the way that race is thought about in the U.S., um, was really impactful for me, right? Like the way that he explained it all and made it made sense, make it made it make sense. Excuse me, um, was really interesting and impactful because of the stories that he was telling and also how he was connecting it to my own experiences at the time. And I don't know if he was doing that on purpose, but he taught in a way that made it relatable. Um, and so I was really interested in the way that this anthropologist, which I didn't know what the word meant, but like what this anthropologist was saying about race and. Um, race and lived experience and blackness and like what nations meant. So the fact that he was focusing a lot of his work on the U.S. Um, he was teaching a lot from his book From Savage to Negro, which I found out later. Um, but it was just a really interesting experience. And so I was introduced to anthropology in that way. And then there was another professor as well at Duke um, whose name was Oren Starn. He's still there as well. Um, and he taught a class on sport. And I took that class maybe like two semesters later. And so the two of them together, one taught a class on race, one taught a class on sport. And then I was both of their students exactly. And I, I was on the other side of that, thinking about these two things together, putting them together and what that meant. Um, I had other experiences on campus that, that made me interested in this um, socially because I like knew players on the team, on the football team specifically. Um, and so I was trying to 
critically think through what their experiences were. And I had some of the tools of anthropology to do that, um, like as a budding anthropologist as an undergrad. Um, and so that's why I was interested in it in the first place, because I could see how it could be mobilized to help me think through these ideas that I was noticing um, as a student. And so because that's what I was looking at as an undergrad, um, I did some research projects around that while I was an undergrad. And Lee came back again and he was like, have you thought about going to grad school? And I was like, what does that even mean? Like, I don't understand what it means to be a researcher. I don't, none of this makes any sense to me. Can you please explain it? Um, and he did. And he's like, you could get a PhD and you could become a professor if that's what you want to do, but you could get a PhD in anthropology. And these things that you've been talking about, that we've been talking about, um, that you've been thinking about, uh, you could pursue those in a more real way. Uh, if you get the degree and you think through, like if your if your fieldwork project is about this specifically, um, so I was like, okay, that sounds fun. I could do that. And so I applied to schools and I ended up at UVA. I am a cultural anthropologist, but UVA is a three field department, and so being in a department that had archaeologists and linguistic anthropologists was really impactful because also Duke is is a one field department. They only have cultural anthropologists there, and so being exposed to um, other anthropologists, like capital A anthropologists that were thinking through the discipline in different ways, but how I could think through my work through those lenses was really interesting and really helpful, especially at that time. Um, I was introduced to other historians of the discipline, so I started to be interested in what the history of the discipline was and how that mattered for what I was doing, but also for my own experience as a grad student and then potentially as a professor, um, like what that would mean um, once I learned more about the history of the discipline. And then uh, my, first, my first academic appointment was at Notre Dame, which is a four-field department, right? So this entire time I'm trained as a cultural anthropologist, but I have had the opportunity to be in departments and around anthropologists that work in the other subfields. And I think that that's been really impactful for the work that I do because it allows me um, to interact with people who are helping me think through my work much more broadly. Um, and I take that really seriously because I think that it is important to to consider the discipline as a whole. Um, so even though I work with people while they're living, like what does it mean to, to think of it in a historical, like the, the history, the material, the linguistic, um, any of those other aspects, like what does that mean to think through my work in that way? And so that's um, after, after I got the position at Notre Dame, I also then somehow ended back up at Duke. And so that's where I am now. I'm currently an assistant professor in the department at Duke, which is the department where I started. So it's a full circle oh, journey in a way. And we'll see how this goes for now, but I'm really enjoying it at the time. Oh, that's fantastic. And congrats. And it's oh, really yeah. impressive. It's like, um, I say it's very impressive, but I remember being an undergraduate who like found like a, a niche, like very, mm -hmm. like being like very moved mm -hmm. by um, like, course content mm -hmm. and, and sort of how it was taught to me. Um, but, but yeah, like having it, it's just very, I don't know if it's lucky or fortuitous or just however, uh, it's a product of sort of, um, like your, your, your drive and analytical ability to be able to like pull that together, like as an undergraduate mm -hmm. to find something that's like a very compelling sort of research direction. Yeah. Um, so, so, Good job. Good Thank job. You. I mean, but I also have to, give credit, I have to give credit to advisors too, right? Like I, yeah, there's no yeah. way I could have done that on my own. And so I think that that was lucky for me that I yeah. was, I was paired with Lee Willard who knew Lee Baker, who yeah. then introduced me to, or, you know, like there's, there's yeah. an interesting trajectory to the way that I got to where I am and there's no yeah. way I could have done that on my own. And so right. I, I, de I do give credit to the two Lees, right? Like they're, they're the reason yeah, that yeah. I'm doing what I'm doing. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, well, thinking a bit more about sort of what you're doing, yeah. like in the in the big picture. Um, so I'm a I'm a very big picture person who doesn't uh, know much about sport. Um, um, and so so you being an ethnographer who looks at the intersections of, of sports, specifically football, um, you know, race, community, kinship, care, and violence. So you've probably thought a lot about sport in general <laughs> over the years. Yeah. Um, but to sort of start off as broadly as possible and to to kind of ground this conversation in sort of the, the bigger uh, picture of, of what we do here at the dirt and just thinking about people in general. Mm-hmm. Like why, why do people do sports? Why sport? Like why do sports exist? Is it more about what it's intersecting with? Yeah. Um, or is there some, there's there like an innate sportsness <laughs> like an, that can be distilled? I just love the way that you're asking these questions because you start <laughs> off by asking like, why do we do sport? Like, I don't know if I would have <laughs> ever said it that way, but you're right. You know, like, why do we do sport? What is this doing of the thing? Um, and why do we do it? And how do we do it? Um, I like this question because it's such a broad question and it does get me out of my, my like very small corner because you're right. I do. I focus on American football and I, I usually will say American football just because sometimes depending on who you're talking to, they think I'm talking about soccer and it's like, no, no, not soccer. Like I, I focus on American football, um, which means that I focus on that sport in the U S because the sport hasn't translated outside of this country for various reasons. Um, but I, I focus on a very small corner of the sport world. Um, and so I appreciate something that makes me think so broad. Um, and I'm actually teaching a sport class right now. It's called Sports and Society. And so we talk about this pretty much every day, but in different okay. in yeah. different oh, ways, great. right? Because I'm trying to, um, like, this <laughs> in, in the class, the students, who some of them are athletes on campus, some of them aren't. Some of them are just interested in sport. I wasn't an athlete growing up. Um, but we're all trying to think through like, why are we so invested in this thing? And what does it say that we, like we, we have all come to an agreement that we are very invested in this thing, right? Like I think that that's kind of the, that's where everybody in the class is starting from. And what I'm trying to get them to, to ask about themselves and about their friends and about their families is like, how did we even get to this place? And what does it mean that this is the place that we're now at? Yeah. Um, and so for me, the way that I like to think through it is that sport has multiple functions at different levels. And I think it depends on like what day and time you ask me on like what I'll say. But sometimes super broad and more global, I think it's about it could be about recreation. It could be about like just moving around. Um, it, so exercise in that way. It could mm-hmm. be playful. Right. Of like it's just kind of fun to I don't know, to go in the backyard and shoot some hoops. Right. Like it's, it's a fun activity to do. Um, but then if you're getting more and more local on these different levels, then that gets you into re- um, interactions with other people, right? So you're able to relate to other people, especially because most sports you have to play with somebody else because sports are about competition at a certain level. And so you can't really compete against yourself, not in a real way. And so you do need someone else there, at least one other person, which yeah. leads to competition, but also leads to interaction, and so it gets humans talking and interacting in a very real way um, at a bodily level, too, usually. Um, in my class today, something that we were talking about was whether bodybuilding is a sport. And so sometimes mm-hmm. I'll throw out different activities of like, is bodybuilding a sport? Is chess a sport? Is gymnastics? Is, right. Like we'll, we'll think through what those what those dynamics mean, like what it means to be a sport. Um, but usually the body is involved in some type of real way. 
Um, and so if you're interacting with other people, sometimes it can also be about community, right? Like coming together around a shared interest or a shared team, um, which then leads to fans who are interacting, right? Like they don't have to be involved, but they are present in a very real way. Fans and audiences do matter to sport usually. Um, and then we could also think bigger about like what sports are meant to teach us, right? And I think that that matters based on the place that you are, but there are certain values that come out of sport. It is about competition, but it also teaches us in a way about a hierarchy, right? Like usually there's a winner and a loser, which teaches us something about the world. And then you get into theorists that are talking about, well, yeah, maybe, but not now, right? Like modern sport has moved <laughs> past that in a very real way. Um, once you started to capitalize on it in tangible ways by adding money to it, by adding media contracts, by adding, you know, like all of these things are adding on to it. Once you started to exclude certain people and include other people just because you wanted, you only wanted certain people to participate, right? Like there's a lot that gets added on to sport to get us where mm -hmm. we are now. But at its broadest, I think it's meant to be something that's fun and playful that gets people together that gets them talking to one another, interacting with one another. You know, like those are those are the idealistic ways of thinking about sport. But you know, we, we've moved way past that. I would I would argue that we've moved way past that. <laughs> and depending on the sport, I can see it as a useful sort of vent for not even necessarily aggression, but like the competitiveness that people have naturally, and that in you know unchecked social situations might uh, prove to be a problem. So like giving, giving someone an outlet to just like go run your wiggles out, mm -hmm. you know, um, is I, I can see that as valuable. And also um, very much reminds me of what we talked about with theater, where a play, particularly a tragedy is a way for you to sort of air out some of the feelings that might be more painful to feel. It sort of lets you feel them in a low stakes environment. And mm -hmm. then at the end of the play, you get to kind of put it away, compartmentalize it. Um, and, and very much so sort of during a game, mm -hmm. if, you know, something happens during a game, it doesn't necessarily reflect how the players treat each other off the field. Mm -hmm. Let me feel these feelings. I don't like these feelings, but I need to use them. And then just sort of like, tackle you to the ground something i would mm -hmm. never do in real life mm -hmm. or something that is not allowed in real life yeah yeah right? exactly so i think that that's the other thing that um because amber you said something about like is sport mirroring society is society mirroring sport are they two separate things um that was a conversation like that's a conversation i have every day with the students that are in my class um, because we're thinking through things that bleed off of a field of play into the real world and the mm -hmm. other way too um, we're thinking through arguments of like whether sports are political, right? People like to argue that sports aren't. I, I don't understand that argument, mm. but that is an argument that's out mm. there. Um, and so it's interesting to consider what's allowed in this space and what isn't um, based on what's allowed or not in the quote unquote real world, like outside of this space, right? And so I think that that's something that, that leads to really interesting questions because it does make us think about like um, how we interact what's allowed, what are the norms around those things, why are we doing, like, why are we allowed to do this here, which then 
if we if we think about something like football, like I would, right? Your example of tackling in this space, I can tackle you. But <laughs> I always tell students that come to my office hours, like you can't tackle me in here. But if for whatever reason I ended up on a football field with you, like you could tackle me there. Like there's something about that space that allows for you to do but that. But please don't. But, oh, definitely don't. <laughs> like I'm not asking you to do that. But I, I understand that if I were on Context, that field. Yeah, yeah. It might be okay, but the other thing that that leads us to where I was getting with that, because, yeah, usually I get caught up in that argument, too. I'm like, please don't tackle me, um, is is about uniforms, right? So, like, there's equipment (laughs) that – so there's equipment that's involved in sport that is different than in other spaces, which theoretically protects you, but Hmm. not in actuality, right? So I I think that when we're talking about what sport represents and what it is – There is a level of like ideally and at its best, here's what it's doing. And then actual reality, um, practically in the everyday, here's this other thing that it's doing. Right. So we could think that it's if we're talking about football again, we can think that it's a space where we can let out aggression and we can be um, structurally not structural violence is is already a thing. But like violence in a very structured way is okay on a football field. Right. Mm -hmm. And theoretically, that is okay because we give you a helmet, we give you pads, we give you equipment to protect yourself. And then in reality, all of that equipment actually doesn't protect you from concussions. And so now we've got to deal with a concussion endemic, right? (laughs) Um, Or a concussion epidemic. And actually... You put, a, you put a uniform on, and theoretically people don't know who you are, but we can still see your skin because of how the uniforms are cut. And so it is a racialized argument because we see that at least half of you are black on this team, even though we know that half of the, the people that are um, students at this university are not black. right? Like, so we've got a disproportionate group here, right? We can see that they are all men because women are not women don't participate, especially in college football. Um, and anytime that they do, it becomes like a huge story. And then we even ask questions of like, why would you potentially want to participate in something that's violent? Um, but it, it is a male dominated sport, right? So then it gets us to talk about gender. There are no out, um, college players right now. So it gets us to talk about sexuality. Like why, why theor- or statistically there are probably gay players in college but none have come out. So why is that, right? So then it gets us to all of these other questions, um, even though ideally it's doing something different. And I think that's, that's what's interesting to me as an intellectual project, but also it gets me to then what is their experience while they're navigating these disconnects and what is and what could be. Um, and by, by them, I mean like the players themselves, right? Like I'm invested in the players' experiences as they're playing the sport. Mm. Well, speaking of lived experiences and intellectual projects, uh, you've got something upcoming, um, Integrating Tobacco Road Football 1965 to 1975, that explores the lived experiences of the black players who integrated the sport at four historically white North Carolina universities. So can you tell us more about that? Sure. So I think that my... Interactions with historians of anthropology has definitely um, influenced the way that I think through my work. I already said that. And that came out of like this project came out of that. Right. So if I'm if I'm kind of dabbling in the history of the discipline, who these historical figures are, how they got credit, how they didn't, who got credit, who didn't. You know, like that's that's the way that I like to think about the, the history of the discipline. Those are the things that I'm invested in. I can do the same thing with my work. Um And so if my current um, book project and my current research is about um, players who are actively playing, um, who are currently playing, then how did they get there? 
right? And so, especially when you're talking about black athletes, someone had to integrate the sport that they were playing. And by someone having to integrate it, I mean that administrators had to allow for those students <laughs> to then participate in the sport, mm-hmm. right? And so who were those first people that chose to participate in the sport? What was their experience? And then how does that either um, align with or differ from experiences that athletes are now going through? And so that was, that was how I got to this. But I'm also from North Carolina, and the part of the, the state that I am from um, is very basketball-obsessed. Um, if you know anything about college sport, um, and if you know anything about North Carolina, you think about basketball when you think of this area of the country. Um, and the particular area that Duke is in, but also where I grew up, it's, it's, a long, it's along something that is it's a theoretical place called Tobacco Road um, that connects four main um, white institutions in this state. Um, again, it's not a, it, it's not an actual road, but it is kind of connected. They are kind of connected by highway. Conceptual. Yes. Road. It's a conceptual space that is given a name and is repeated all the time. So if you okay. ever hear someone talk okay. about tobacco yeah. road, that's what they're talking about. Okay. Um, and so what, what really interested me about this area of the country, um, is the fact that there are these white institutions, these like notable white institutions that are known for basketball. And also in the state, because of the way um, that integration happened, that higher education developed, there are also a lot of historically black colleges and universities in the state. And so um, I am interested in the experience of the, the experiences of the athletes that chose to go to the white of the black athletes that chose to go to the white institutions in the sixties and seventies over going to the HBCUs that are here. Um, because I think that that is a really, it, it had to have been a really interesting thought process to get to that point of, I'm going to leave my family. I'm going to leave the high school that I went to, which was probably um, a predominantly black high school, given the, the time period. And also again, the, the part of the country we're in. Um, to choose to be recruited by a white institution and to go there instead. Um, and the time period, you said 1965 to, uh, 65 to six, or 65 to 75, excuse me, the time period matters because that means that the people that did that, most of them are still alive, right? Because this wasn't that long ago. It is history, yeah. but it's very recent history. And so I can actually still talk to them because they're still around, um, and so what was that experience like and how does that experience compare to what's going on now? And again, the last thing is that I focus on football and everything that I do. And I think that it will be interesting. And the reason that I chose to focus on football for this project, too, is that there is a lot of information around basketball players here. Um, people often talk about basketball players historically and in a contemporary sense. Right. We talk about the coaches that are here. We um, will talk about the ones that go to the NBA. Like that is the narrative around this part of the country. And there's another sport sitting right there um, that is, to me, just as interesting, if not more. Um, and there's not as much information about um, the sport at those at that time um, and who was participating in the sport at that time. And so that's how I've kind of gotten to this. You said it's an upcoming project. You know, like that's that's all theoretical. You know, I'm working on a book and the book isn't this. <laughs> but this is this is the side project that I'm working on to go okay. alongside it. Uh, because I think that what what I'm what I'm working on now in the present and this historical aspect of it, they do go hand in hand in a very real way, right? Because the players that I'm working with could not be where they are without these players that integrated their sport, right? However many years mm-hmm. ago, yeah. Would these players have also been 
Um, would would they have a community of, of, of black peers as classmates or did academic integration happen uh, well before, well, well before, um, like years before or, or decades prior to this? Like, is, was this sort of an additional layer of integration or was this something that sort of precipitated um, an increase in non-athlete black mm-hmm. students going to these institutions versus um, HBCUs mm-hmm. in, in North Carolina or elsewhere? Mm-hmm. I think it depends on what institution you're looking at. Okay. Okay. It depends, but I'll, I'll say we'll, we'll, we'll go along with the fact that classrooms integrated before teams did. Like okay. if, if that's our argument, right. Which which applies at certain places and it it doesn't apply at other places. Um, The other thing that comes up sometimes is that like a team could have integrated and they could have had one player that was on the team, one black player that was on the team. And then it took years for another black player to be on the team. Right. So just because it integrated doesn't mean that that was sustained. It means that there's gaps in it. Um, Yeah. It's, it's not like a, like a, yeah, it's 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 not not, like a binary of just like, we did it. It's done. Integrated. We're we're good. (laughs) And we're all happy about it. Cause that's definitely not the case. Right. Um, But even, even if we were to say that one happened before another, which usually they happen around the same time, but even if we say that one happened before another, the other thing that you have to think about is when they were integrating, it's not like they were inviting, it's not like they were inviting or recruiting or admitting a ton of people, right? right. Um, I think the first class at Duke that had black students in it, I think there were five of them that graduated at the same time, right? And so yeah. if that came either before or after, I don't think any of them played sports. Um, but the, okay. if that came before or after, you know, like even if people came in at that time, you know, like you're in school for four years and so they can yeah. they can admit other students, you may maybe on a college campus, like maybe you've yeah. got 10 of you at the same time, 20 of you at the same time. Um, and so it takes a while to have any type of sustained real numbers. But even now, I mean, like there aren't really sustained real numbers, right? Like if you if you look at the demographics of any of these universities, especially the ones that I'm talking about, maybe you get to 8% of the student body is black. Um, so I think it's it's all it's all relative, right, on how, how right. much you want to say it has changed. Um, but I would say, I would definitely say that the, the, the students that integrated the universities, that integrated the teams, like they do play a very real role in where we are now at these universities. And again, basketball is usually highlighted in a very real way. And then also like the pioneers that integrated the college itself, like the university, the classrooms, like they're often highlighted in a real way too. Um, and even in the conversation that we're having here, like women are often left out of this, right? Like I don't, I don't work with, um, female athletes, but you don't often hear the first black woman that was on an athletic team at one of these universities. Right. And so there are these, um, you, you said something about pockets earlier, right? Like there's like very noticeable pockets of invisibility on like who gets highlighted and who isn't. And just with this project, football is something that I'm invested in, but like there are so many different ways to think through this of, of who was not there and then when they were and what that meant at that time that they were there, um, yeah. what that experience was at the time, what that meant to them, what it meant to the university, what it meant to their families um, and, mm, and how yeah. we are where we are now. And so and so that brings us to our, uh, the next question, which is something that I always love um, asking folks, especially those outside of um working directly with the archaeological record of just like what does a day look like and so how do you go about designing the phases of your research especially when you we've talked about projects where you have um 
you can do sort of more historical stuff with um, living interlocutors. You can do contemporary stuff. Like, are are you perhaps you are sort of like how do you navigate like working like with people who are in your classes and and the, all of those sorts of things. Um, and so, what does a day of research look like for you? Like, what are your your days look like right now outside the classroom? Yeah, so that's an interesting question because I'm actually not like officially conducting research right now, right? Um, because I was uh, like in the field, quote unquote, in the field, right? Um, the 2017-2018 academic year, that was my main like field work year. Um, and I've been thinking through these ideas and like all of this, I've been thinking about it for at least the last 10 years. Um, but that was my sustained year field work. And then there were pockets. Now this word is going to be in my mind, right? There were pockets of time at other points in time too. Um, but officially that's when I was in the field, the, the 12 ish months, 12, 13 months, um, during that academic year. Um, so if I'm thinking through like that time period, because right now, like I'm writing, right? Like I'm writing up, it was my dissertation, but now it's the book. And so I'm writing about what happened in, in that year. Um, but if I'm thinking back to, I don't know, October 2017, which, oh my goodness, was five years ago now. That's wild. Um, <laughs> uh, so all of five years ago, feels longer. Um, so much has happened in that time. Yeah. Um, if I'm thinking about October 2017 instead of October 2022, um, I could think about, you know, like in a, in a day, it's like, okay, this player is the one that's going to talk, like, I'm going to hang out with this player today because... I guess it depends on who you ask, but I do like, I like to think about field work as like the deep hanging out the way that it's, it's been narrated in that way. Um, deep and, hanging out. Yeah. And I like that a lot. That's have you, uh, y'all are archeologists. So is that not something that like has translated <laughs> over to the archeology span space? Uh, only depth in about? terms of the trench that we're sitting ah, in. Yeah. That makes total <laughs> sense. That's so funny. <laughs> so, so yes, that is a term that is sometimes used to describe what cultural anthropologists do is deep hanging out. Um, and I take that very seriously because I love to hang out. And so if I am um, if I am with one player on this day, right, one, I have to have already secured access, which means that I've already talked to him. He knows who I am. He knows what the whole point of all of this is. Right. Like I'm going to I plan on writing a book, but your name won't be in it. The school won't be in it. Um, like not by name. Um, any identifying information about you won't really be used. Um, I just really want to know what your life is like. So can I follow you around for a day? That was usually what I would ask people. And they'd be like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and so I would go to class with them. You know, like I would have to prove with the professors, but I would go to class with them. I'd eat meals with them. Um, if it, it depends on what day it was, sometimes I was allowed to go to practices in the morning. Um, I could never go into a locker room. That was like the one space that I was never allowed in. And that's a gendered, um, that's a gendered space in a very real way. And so I was not allowed there. Um, but I would just hang out with him throughout the day. Like, where's he going? What's he doing? Who's he talking to? What's going on? Um, and I might do that with different players throughout the day or different players on each day of the week. And then because it's October, it's football season. I know that, um, the schedule will change over the course of the week, but by Saturday they will be playing in some game. Um, if it's home or away, it doesn't matter. If it's home, I will, you know, hang out with the recruited players and their families because Saturdays are when um, teams will show off the team to people that they want to come to mm. their school. Mm. <laughs> and so I would mm-hmm. hang out with the players and the and the parents that were being recruited um, and go sit at games with them. I, the, the parents of active 
players, they would be at the games. And so I'd talk to them and sit with them and see what was going on, what they were interested in, what had happened since the last time I talked to them, um, what their sons are into. Like, what have you heard from him this week? You know, is he is he nervous about this game? Is he excited? Did he get hurt last week? Like, how are you feeling about all this? You know, like, those are the things that I would be interested in. And then you sit at a game that lasts like three or four hours. And you watch, (laughs) you know, like you watch, you see it all come out in a very real way, right? Like you've been to all the practices, you've seen them studying the film, you saw the the long days of them having to be in class and having to navigate, like finding their own meals and hanging out with friends, but going to this meeting and I've got to go over here and I've got to go to, um, to see the sports medicine person because I've got this like weird thing that's going on with my knee. But now you see it all happening on Saturdays at the game. Right, mm-hmm. which are also televised. So anything that I didn't see myself at a game, like I could just go back and watch because everything is on TV. <laughs> so there's a record of it, right? And I think that that's an interesting aspect of, of what I do is that people are always talking about sports, right? Like whether they love it or hate it, it is always being talked about. The, the narratives are circulating all the time. We have whole channels devoted to just this that play over and over and over again. You know, like some people's jobs are really just to talk about athletes. Um, And so it's an interesting space to be in because there's so much information. And so something that I really had to think through is like, what do I want to focus on, right? And for me, it is like, I I can do an analysis of all of these narratives all I want. And people do that sometimes. And like, that is a way to do this, not necessarily in anthropology, but that is a way to approach the study of sport. I'm much more invested in, like, what's it like just to be a 19-year-old guy who, you know, is in college and is really tall and is really strong and he's a young black guy and he just happens to play football, right? Like, what is that experience? And so that's what I'm invested yeah. in and that's how I'm trying to get there. And so everything that I was doing was trying to answer that question of, like, what is this mm. like for you? Um, and that was when I was actively in the field. And then when the pandemic happened, it was another aspect of my work because again I wasn't like actively doing research I didn't have an open IRB or anything like that Um, but the way that universities responded to the pandemic and um, everything shut down in March 2022 but all of the 65 major universities in the in the country were playing football by November of that year right and if we think about the timing of that like this was before vaccines Um, this was before we really knew anything real about long COVID, which we're still trying to figure out. Right. But like, it was before we had much, a lot of real information about what was going on with this, um, with this virus. And yet six months later, all of these football players were back at their universities playing. Right. And I wasn't at the games. I did not go to any games that season, that 2020 season, but to see, to see them on TV, in front of empty stadiums because there right, were there were yeah. fans. I remember um, that. Yeah. yeah, because it was like a it was a safety mm-hmm. issue. It was a safety issue. But not to have people come and watch. Right, but they they were playing. Right, and yeah. not only is this a violent sport, but like it's a contact sport. Right, like you're in each other's yeah. faces. Yeah, so like, like you're practicing. Fumes you're in the locker Right. Like you're you're very close together, like outside of the fact that you are meant to like part of the reason that you're so close together is you're, you know, tackling and you're it's it is contact. But the other thing is that like you're just in each other's faces. You might have masks on, but that was a real thing. And so I was very interested in this thing, um, this thing that was going on around an airborne virus. And like we're just all we're all together. Right. We, quote unquote, and the players are the we in this. Right. Smashing. And so when the pandemic happened and the way that that was being narrated and the way that. 
um, universities were pretending like they were caring about the well-being of the athletes on their campuses. I thought that that was a really interesting time. And again, because I because there is so much information out there and I have access to all of that, whether through, I don't know, watching TV or social media or the blogs or the commentators, the newspapers, right? Like there was always something, especially in the very beginning of that season about like maybe um, August and September 2020, there was a lot of information that was coming out around what they were trying to do with the with football because that was the beginning of the season. It was a really interesting time to to be who I am as a researcher, watching all of that go on um, and the ways that people were reacting. And the main reason that they had to have them play was because they would have lost a ton of money. Right. Like there was a stat that came out at that time that public schools would have lost four billion with the B dollars if players did not play, if football did not go on. Right. And that's only and- public institutions. Yeah, that's just that's something that I so I um, so I'll listeners now i'm from west virginia like i'm from like De- like mountaineer country uh, so grew up knowing like like uh college football mm-hmm. uh when i went to grad school i was at cal which was a, not a good football school but like that didn't stop them from it, sinking a ton of money into a new stadium and so like all of these the and and in both spaces there's always been conversations around uh, compensation mm-hmm. of of coaches mm-hmm. and and sort of the the way that the schools make money off of their of of their student athletes and and so just having those very um, like tangential experience like that kind of tangential knowledge of it of being like this always like didn't sit well with me mm-hmm. um, and to uh, like also like hearing the way people talk about players and the way people talk about the sport and that it felt very much like these are products mm-hmm. like these are products that are marketed and commodified and um, you don't think of them <laughs> as um, people with interiority mm-hmm. and, and that's something that I find um, so valuable about work like yours of just sort of that is um, because you know we on the show talk about how like the past had humans in it but in fact like the present also has humans in it right and and sometimes like I think we're still here (laughs) and I think that in in situations like this like when it's something that is televised from a distance like where you sort of lose that um, and even when like the protective clothing it makes them look a little less like people mm-hmm. and like a little less like identifiable individuals mm-hmm. who um, are, um, are are doing something that that there's like an inherent element of violence mm-hmm. and of danger mm-hmm. um, and and like having them come back and be like, well, you're already at substantial risk of uh, harm like playing in the first place, mm-hmm. whether you love it, like you could, you can love it and mm-hmm. you can love to do it. And you could, this could be like part of a long-term career goal that you have, but also you could be doing this because this is what you've done since you were seven and you are trying to get your degree yep. and this is how you get your degree sort of thing. Like, you know, I worked in the dining hall. That's how I got my degree. Like we, you know, but that sort of way of like, this is, this is something that we do. And so seeing that in 2020 and seeing that discourse around it, um, it yeah. felt very bald to me. Mm-hmm. I was just like, well, like you're, I see, I see what you're going for. Like, priorities are laid bare here. Yeah. So yeah, and, that's, and very, in very, very real tangible ways. Right. And yeah. so even though mm-hmm. I wasn't actively doing research in 2020, 
it was a really interesting time to be taking in all of that on a daily basis because it was only informing all of the stuff that I had experienced in the field in 2017 and the years before. Right. So if I'm seeing, if I'm seeing that (laughs) colleges and universities, usually universities are, um, figuring out a way for players to be on a field every Saturday during the season. Right. But, but people are not in the stands as you're saying, right. There was a lot of money that was invested in making sure that that could happen. Right. And one of the things was testing. Right. So at some universities it was coming out, but also like there was a lot that was written around it. Like some universities would test their football players every day to, to be able to uh, contact, contact trace COVID if it became an yeah. issue. Um, but the only way that they could do that was by a lot of testing. Right. And if we, again, think about that time period, that was when we weren't sure, like if we had enough tests for everybody It was when people that were working in medical spaces like didn't have access to tests. And so they weren't sure what was going on, but they were sure they were sick. They just didn't like there wasn't a record of it. Right. But these athletic teams and this is college and professional had access to enough tests to be able to test whole teams every day. Right. And so that to me is a very specific type of investment of resources Mm -hmm. and of a certain kind of care that was only proving all of the stuff that I had seen before Especially yeah. the stuff around injuries, right? So, like, all of this is invested. Like, something happens to you, you are hurt during a game. All of these resources are invested in you to make sure that you are okay so that you can play again, maybe not next week, but the week after, right? So, we're going to do a ton of stuff so we can make sure that you can get back on the field, right? There are two different situations, but I think that they're coming from a very similar space. And all of it has to do with, like, we, the university, can't make money if there are not people on this field. So, we need to make sure that they are out on that field. Right. Like, what do we have to do so that that can happen? And so everything that was happening during the pandemic was like a very exaggerated example of all the stuff that I was seeing during fieldwork. And so it was an interesting time to put an ethnographer's hat on, even though I wasn't interacting with people, even though I wasn't in those like physically in those spaces. I wasn't talking to anybody. Right. But the ways that they were talking about their own experiences, the ways that universities were talking about what they were doing, the ways that teams and coaches were narrating it. All of that was data that was only informing the stuff that I'd seen before. Yeah. So jumping right off of that, perfect interview guest segues into the next question. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, So let's talk a a little bit about uh, the issue of repeated concussive injuries and and CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, a progressive brain degeneration caused or thought to be caused by multiple blows to the head. Um, And so increasing awareness of that has been... Um, a part of sort of football discourse, as I'm aware of it. Um, But how does that issue impact black athletes of various ages? That's a great question. That is the stuff that I'm moving into. So the the historical project is the side project. The next like full on fieldwork project is going to be a a project about concussions. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think that it is a very natural progression from the stuff that I'm doing now um, to think through what it means, like, what, what is that thought process of playing football when now we have the information that concussions are such an issue? Um, and that happens in all sorts of ways, right? Like, the first, the first time that I was actively in the field, like, that, that first year, it was right after the movie Concussion came out that Will Smith was mm-hmm. in. And so there was a, a specific dialogue around it because, the, like, a popular movie had come out around it. It wasn't a documentary or anything. It was, like, a motion picture. Um, and so the fact that that was out and then... 
we now, right, like that was five years ago. Now we've got discussions around um, athletes that, I mean, like the Dolphins are currently going through. The Dolphins quarterback probably had repeated concussions less than a week apart. And so what does that now mean for his life, like actual life? Because that can kill a person to do that. What does that mean for his career? What does that say about the Dolphins that he played, that they allowed him to play? What does that say about the institution of football itself? What does that say about the NFL, right? Like all of these things have something to do with at the middle, at the center of it, it's about um, like individual players experiencing concussions. The way that I have chosen to now narrate this is that when kids choose to play a sport, especially a sport like football, it's usually like they're usually very young. Um, and, and I'll sometimes ask people like when they started playing and usually the answer is about like six, seven, eight, right? Like they'll start playing around then. There's conversations, more definitely more conversations now around um, whether or not somebody that young should be playing tackle football. Um, and so at least that's changing of whether it should just be flag until a certain age, whether tackle is okay um, when they're that young. Like when should you start playing? What is What are the actual risks to an eight-year-old playing tackle football? Right? Like these are actual tangible questions that are not coming out. Um, but if you start playing at that age, you become invested in it. Um, you see that potentially you can go to college based on this thing that you play that is kind of fun, but you're like starting to be kind of good at it, right? And you are invested in it in a different way. So if I can go to college based off of the fact that I play football and I play it well, then like, why not? Um, whether or not I want to go pro, you know, like that can be a way for me to get to college or a different college, right? Like I could be recruited at a college that maybe I didn't have access to before. Um, or maybe it's like a college that I wanted to go to, I could get into just, just based off of academics and also I can play football. Like this is amazing, right? Like why not? And so you get players that are, are going through that process, thinking through that. Um, but as you said, like CTE is an issue that comes up, um, based on repeated head trauma and CTE is something that's only diagnosed after death. Right. So it's, right. it's only, it's only something that can be diagnosed when someone is looking at your brain. Um, and so you've been playing for however many years, let's say that, oh, wow, I can't actually go pro, you know, like either I get drafted or I go free agent. I'm playing in the pros for two or three years. This is great. It's a lot of money because those contracts are pretty great usually. Um, and then I decide to stop playing three years in for whatever reason, right? Like I, I choose to stop or I get injured to an extent that I can't play anymore. Um, and now I have all of these issues that I am pretty sure have something to do with the fact that I was hit in the head a lot of times, but I'm not sure because some of it can't be diagnosed in that way. It can't all be traced back, but I do know that, you know, I did experience some, some concussions or I had some, um, some, some of the, some of the outputs from what I was playing did were aligned with what happens when somebody has a concussion. Whether or not I was diagnosed with that while I was playing, it, it kind of aligns with that, right? Um, okay. And I know that the NFL has um, the NFL has some money set aside for a concussion settlement. This is something that happened a couple of years ago, um, and I try to access that. And actually, they tell me no, the NFL isn't the issue. Like it wasn't because you played this. It mm. wasn't because you participated in the sport at this level. Or the thing that they were doing was, um, in, in this scenario, the eye is a black man, right? Like, in this scenario, they were race-norming the results to say that black players weren't as impacted by the concussions as white players were. And so in this entire scenario, you've got someone who's playing I'm, the sport. I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. Tracy. Mm -hmm. That yeah. last point, yeah. what? What? Yeah. <laughs> why, why would... 
Why not? What who, what good does that do? Anymore? What, like, why was why was that point made? Yeah. So race not Marie, by you. By why no, was no, that? No, shared? By, by the yeah. Race Marie is something yeah. that is is real in the world of medicine, right? Like, it's something that we have access to. Um, we, it's race warming in medicine is something that we know happens, has happened for a very long time yeah. in different subfields of medicine, right? And so the NFL didn't come up with it. Um, but yeah. it did use it in its concussion settlement and it was race norming, um, the results of these testing, um, of these tests that players were going through to try to gain access to the money from the settlement. Right. And so if, and so, okay, so we've got that narrative, right? So yeah. if when you started playing as an eight year old and you are a black boy at that time, there's something called racial stacking. Where um, if you look at positions on the field, like you will see that usually white boys, men are playing a certain position, white boys or black boys, men are playing another position because of something called racial stacking. It's based on assumptions based on like, um, um, like ability and athleticism and like smarts. It's based on all of those. And so sometimes they will be pigeonholed into certain um, certain positions and okay. let's say that as this eight-year-old, I I was really fast, and I probably wouldn't yeah. be like super tall, and so it makes sense for me to be a running back, and so I become a running back, and um, that is a position that is hit a lot because of like what they have to do on a field, um, right? So yeah. it, because they're, they have the ball and they need to be stopped, run with right? ball, yeah, try not <laughs> yeah. to get tackled, yep. Exactly. I'm, I'm hoping not to be tackled, and hopefully I'm yeah. fast enough to avoid it, right? But all of these things. Um, then make up the fact that like I was actually tackled a lot. And even if I left college a year early, like my body is worn down in a different way than if I had played another position just by the nature of the position itself. Right. And that's all because a coach when I was eight years old encouraged me to go into this position over another. Right. So, so what I'm trying to narrate with this is that even if it's just like a kid that's playing football and he's having a good old time doing it and maybe he can go to the pros, like kind of what we were talking about before, there's a lot that's underlying all of this. Right. That if you're a black boy that's playing, you might be encouraged into a a certain position. Once you get to college, you will be disproportionate on your football team versus in a classroom. Right. Because the football team is going to be about 50 percent black and your classroom is not going to be that. Right. So you've got that experience of dealing with that. You also now live in a body that is built up in a very particular way um, so that you can play football. But that body is read completely differently off of the football field. Right. So now you are really tall and really strong walking around in the world seen as a threat because of the body that you live in. That is actually the body that protects you in football and makes you really good at that sport. Right. Yeah. You're suffering from concussions throughout all of this, but you actually make it to the NFL. Right. And you only play for a couple of years and now you are retired and you're having all of these issues that are probably rooted in concussions. But you can't access the money that the NFL has set aside for the settlement. Right. And so this this issue with concussions is interesting to me because I am curious how people make that decision, knowing that this is a narrative that happens quite often. And so how do you make that decision? I mean, like not the kids. Kids shouldn't have to make the decision by themselves. Right. But if it's something that, you know, is happening, like who's helping you make the decision that this is something that you want to pursue? Right. Like who's encouraging you? Who's helping you? Who's protecting you in that? How are you choosing to to navigate that space? Um, are you worried about injuries? Because concussions aren't the only injury that can happen in football, right? right? Like you can, there are some horrible injuries that come out of football, like sometimes life ending, but definitely career ending injuries that have nothing to do with concussions. Um, So how do you even take into account all of the issues that can happen? Like 
literally to your body that you need to live once football ends? Like, how do you make that decision? Also, other people's bodies. Yeah. Like, because, like, if you, you you being the running back, there's someone whose job it is to stop you. Yeah. And, and that there is... With their um, body. And... And, yes. and well, and so like you can hurt someone mm-hmm. and that probably I, I would imagine has like an effect on someone mm-hmm. long term mm-hmm. um, and um, and and their experience. But yeah, also I like I'm so, I caught myself like making a like fully like Tucker Carlson, like indignant face, like <laughs> while you were like sharing. I was like, oh, I'm just like looking so confused and like open mouth at this point because it's ridiculous right like it's 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 a ridiculous situation um that for me always comes back to like if you talk to anyone that plays football usually I mean like some of them actually hate it but usually it's just like because they like to play and it's fun and like their friends are doing it and like some of them it did get them to college and so they have all these opportunities because you know like at the center of it sometimes it really is just that and I know plenty of people that that's sort of the best way that they were able to like connect with their father mm-hmm. or with like their brothers mm-hmm. or something. And like, there's sort of these like very like gendered um, roots to affection mm-hmm. kind of thing of very like, so. of, of dealing with like within masculinity, that this is yeah. a way to uh, comfortably like uh, have intimacy. Yeah. With, yeah. There's, with a, there's a very real intimacy that comes through, I think sport generally yeah. But especially in this country through football, right? Like, and yeah. you're right, it does it does connect to other male members of a family usually. Um, but it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to think through because at its core it can be playful, it can be loving, it can be yeah. like just a nice thing, you know, like something that does connect us. And then if you think through the actual dynamics of it, like it's super violent and incredibly racist usually, and anti-black more yeah. specifically. Um, it's misogynistic. It's, you know, like it's all of these, all of the isms, like all of those are definitely yeah. embedded in football when at the core of it is just somebody that wants to hang out with his friends. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask when, about um, when you share your research more generally, perhaps with people that don't know anything about sports. <laughs> um, like, I, I'm sure you, it's hard for you to get in that headspace of talking to somebody that doesn't know any, but anything <laughs> about sports, but like, you know, be patient with me here. Um, what knowledge or insight do you most want people to walk away from those conversations with? Uh, like, what is something that you've learned over, well, that you've you've come to understand or kind of articulate over the course of your career thus far that um, makes you think like people need to know this? I think that uh, the first thing is that even if people don't know much about sport, like you're surrounded by sports all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's, yeah. that's always a funny thing because you probably know more than you think, you know, but it's because you didn't want to know it. Like you, you learned it not because you wanted to, right. Yeah. But, Unwilling but osmosis. By it and it's, <laughs> right. It's just always around you. Yeah, and yeah. it's always being talked about. And especially especially for academics, like if you're on a college campus, like you're interacting with athletes, whether or not you know it, whether or not they want you to know it, like you're interacting with them all the time. As someone um, who yeah. lives directly across from a university sports complex, mm-hmm. I do know that. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's like that. That could be the athletes. That can be for you. It's like the fans that come on game day and you're having to like deal with that. Uh, it's it more can the fireworks. Be, 
It can be the fire, right? The celebration that comes from it, the noise, like after wins, like how exaggerated yeah. celebration. You know, like everyone is interacting yeah. with sport, especially in college spaces, just because it's so ridiculous sometimes. Yeah. Everyone Love is interacting with sports in some way. And so because of that, even if you're not invested in it, even if you don't watch them, even if you don't like them, I think what I try to say is like think through the ways that they do matter in very tangible ways mm-hmm. and and realize that the the systemic stuff that's happening in sport matters outside of sport because it is a mirror, right? Like they are mm-hmm. very much reflecting one another. And so if you hear about this wild case that happened on some college football team, like something happened, right? Like, and I could think like right off the top of my head, I can think of like five different examples in the media right now, of like things that are going on in different leagues, right? That's not just in sport that that's happening. So if it's not just in sport and we know it's also not just in that sport, in that league, it's a systemic thing to sport, that probably means that that's going to matter outside of a football field or outside of a soccer field or off of a basketball court, right? Like, and so how do those things matter in the real world? We could maybe see it more deliberately or more obviously in sport, but how do those things matter outside of it, right? Like how do – there was a report, that, a report that just came out two days ago about um, – Soccer, women's soccer, and it's a report of repeated and systemic abuse and especially sexual misconduct that's been going on in in professional soccer, right? Like that is not unique to soccer because we could see it in other sports the way that that had happened, but we can also see it in other industries, other institutions, in plenty of other ways, right? Like in, in everybody else's everyday lives, the stuff that's happening at this exaggerated scale that's getting written about on ESPN and CNN is happening in everyday lives too, Right. Like the the examples of anti-blackness and racism that are going on in the NFL and in college football that consistently come up, the slips in the language. Right. Like, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Or the race norming stuff like, oh, we didn't know that this was how it was. You know, like those types of things like that came from medicine. Right. Like race norming came from medicine. And that's another institution that is impacted in the same way. And these little slips in languages or these little slips in language that you're saying is what that was. Well, actually, there's a reason why that language is the way that it is and why you think that, you you know, like all of that matters in very real ways. And so I think that that's that's what I really try to get um, like students that come to my classes, like my colleagues who have no idea what's going on in the world of sport. um, Other anthropologists, other scholars, my mom, you know, like anyone. (laughs) I think the point is um, the point is that the stuff that's happening in sport matters not because you have to care about it, but because it matters to your actual life, right? Like, and it matters in these different ways because these things are not separate, right? So you yeah. can think that they are, but if my argument is that it is a mirror and the things that are just reflecting one another, where do you see that reflected back on you and your experience and your life and the people that are around you? And once we realize that these things are part of a much larger problem or issue or potentially good thing, like there's not that much good, but like potentially good thing, once we see that they're all connected, then I think that's when we can make some type of progress in some way somewhere. Um, But just to notice that they are all connected, right? Like it's not separate. It's not just its distinct own thing over there. It's like, no, that actually really matters in these other spaces too. Yeah. 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 I've known, I've known plenty of people who, mistake not knowing about sports for a personality um, and like not not caring about sports and that it's always like kind of hit me wrong yeah of just like where I felt like there were some things at work it's there like, no you're yeah. ignoring um, the, a big uh, chunk of stuff yeah well well just sort of like there are some some like 
there's like a fair amount of like elitism happening there and like very, very lots of things going on there. But I think that what you just said really helped help me kind of crystallize like what my problem with those kinds of positions and I mean among other problems mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with with those sorts of of attitudes and positions of just like you don't get to be like not for me discounting mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. sort of like that um uh, because yeah. it is it yeah it this is a yeah. it does matter oh, it I'm does so glad that we're talking matter. about this yes <laughs> are you ready for the hardest questions uh sure okay <laughs> These are, these are the ones that we ask each podcast guest, so, and we love seeing kind of the, the breadth of answers. So okay. what is the best thing or your favorite thing about anthropology? That is a tough question. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I will say that anthropology has got a lot of issues. And if you ever talk to me, like, you, you know that I think that anthropology has a lot of issues. Um, but I think that at its best, it is a discipline. It's a way of looking at the world. It's a it's a field, it's, you know, like whatever you want to call it. Um, it's something that one allows us to take, well, and this is also funny talking to two archeologists, but, um, for, for me, it is something that allows me to take people seriously in the way that they're talking about their own experiences. Right. So I get to Mm -hmm. interact with people and work with people and see the ways that they are actively theorizing their own lives and like do something with that. Um, and take that seriously and respect that and figure out like what that actually means, how they're navigating the world, how they're making sense of the world, who's in their world, right? Like how are they choosing the people that are around them? That to me is really interesting. Um, and I think that anthropology can do that really well. And I think that once you've got that, the other thing that it can do really well is it can, it can look at these like small details, like this everydayness. Like, the things that don't seem to matter, they're super boring, um, and it's just, like, somebody's day-to-day, right? And then explode that out and say, like, and here's this structure that's allowing for this to happen, or, like, here's how it's connecting, yeah. right? And I think that there's something really special about being able to use individual experiences to make larger arguments about, like, this world, this space, this structure, this system that we're all in together, um, but to for it to always... At least for me, it always comes back to like this one person that said this one thing to me on this day and like what that means for this larger thing that I'm interested in. Um, and I think that that can be really special. And again, like when it's at its best, I think it, it does that in really, really interesting, really cool ways. Um, so it can be about the people, but it can also be um, as an ethnographer, it can be in like the products that come out of that. Right. Like I think it's cool that like y'all have a podcast like that's a really cool way of delivering information and like making something academic, but making it accessible. Right. Like I think that that's special. I think that people that are doing like graphic ethnography is cool. People that are putting together zines, people that are like mm. producing music and performances and dancing, you know, like all of that, like the ways that we can describe and express like mm-hmm. what people are going through and what they're thinking about themselves and making meaning in their own world. I think that that's really cool. Um, and that's why I'm an anthropologist, not a sociologist. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Great. Oh, perfect button on the end of that. Um, <laughs> oh, and so then our last question. Last question. Uh, until we ask, until we ask where to find your work. But oh, okay. our last interview question um, is: If you could be a fly on the wall for any event in human prehistory, human history, or any moment in the development of anthropology, uh, what would you most want to see? Also, a tough question. 
Um, yes. Because pairing with my first question, part of the reason that I have a lot of problems with anthropology historically and also sometimes in the contemporary moment is that black and indigenous people haven't really fared well, especially in the history of anthropology and especially yeah. in its in its development. Right. Um, that can be as scholars like I am a black woman. So as a scholar, if I like I might have been pushed out of the field, I might not have had access to the field. Uh, my work might not have been treated seriously, wouldn't have been considered capital A anthropology. Like I might have had access to being trained as an anthropologist, but I wouldn't have been hired in anthropology departments. Really, that's one side of it. And then if you think on the other side, you've got um, you've got researchers and anthropologists specifically that dehumanized and othered people that were not looking like them and they're part of the world um, and wrote about them in ways that was dehumanizing and othering. And um, none of that was super positive. Right. And so if we if we think about the history of anthropology in that way, there's not much that I'd be like super into revisiting. Um, right. Right. But, yes. <laughs> but um but I do um, something that I teach and something that I'm I'm interested in and and an experience that I'm interested in specifically is Zora Neale Hurston's and the way that she um, became who she was. She was trained as an anthropologist, even if she wasn't given credit in the discipline until much later. Um, and she went on to do plenty of other things. But her her history with anthropology has become much more um, in the public discourse, like much more recently than than her other work, um, especially like the the plays and. Um, the, the fiction that she wrote, right? But um, in Mules and Men, which was published in 1935, um, which is her like autoethnographic account of going back home to Eatonville, Florida to, to collect folklore, like that's what her initial project was there. Um, she has, and it's not even the introduction, it's in like the preface of the book. She talks about how um, like she's going to turn the spyglass of, anth- I love this phrase, the spyglass of anthropology onto her hometown and then later on, she says that she's able to do that and she's able to go back to this place that's like rich in material because she thinks that she can access it without hurting or harming the people that are there. And mm. um, she'd already had experiences of not being able to conduct research where she wanted to. It was too dangerous. She didn't have access. She couldn't because she was a black woman. Right? Like all of these reasons why. And so I think that I would like to, if, if I can give a two-part answer, one is to like ask her how she ended up like... I just love that turn of phrase, right? Like the spyglass of anthropology. I put it in everything. Um, but, <laughs> but like, I, I really like that turn of phrase. And so how how she came to the conclusion that like going home was where she needed to be to do this work. Yeah. Um, so one would be the conversation with her about the process of like choosing that place and being allowed to, to be at that place after she'd gone through so much, right? And then the second part would be, it's, it's also in the way that she writes this this book. Um, and I don't know how much of it was fictionalized. You know, like, I don't know how much of it was was real in the way that she wrote it. But at the beginning, she's talking about, like, rolling up and seeing people on their porches and then them recognizing her. And they're like, what are you doing back here? Like, what? Why did you come back down here? And she, like, explains, like, she was in New York and she wants to come back and collect those, these stories. Right. And so I would like to be sitting beside the first person that saw her <laughs> when she came back into town. Um, to see like what that to see that person's reaction the way she writes it it was a it was a man so like to see his reaction and then to see how she reacted to him recognizing her and then like the reactions or the the interactions that they had together like when she got to go back home and they would tell her these stories which became the book um that's the moment that I would like to you know just be sitting Uh, there just witness you know see how Mm, that worked yeah (laughs) yeah exactly 
Oh, that's so not so much a fly on a wall as a fly on a porch. Yes, on a porch uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and like yeah. a person. I yeah, want to be a person, person on the yeah. street. Yeah. Person, yeah. person yeah. on a porch. Yeah. Yes. Okay, good. We're, we can. That's fine. This is a scenario. We can revisit where... the terms of the, the, the question. This is fine. It's fine. We're time traveling and uh, apparently we can turn you into a fly if necessary. So yeah. like we have some room. Exactly. Yeah. Fictionalizing. Yeah. Um, Tracy, this has been so great. Um, where Thank can you. folks find more of you? Where, where can they oh, find wow. you, your work, if they want to get in Specifically touch? Specifically your work. Yes. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Not like, <laughs> yeah, not like that, you know? I don't want to give people don't, your address. Right. Don't come no, find that's me. That's not what I want. You know, um, digitally, um, I can be found. I'm online. I have a website, uh, tracycanada.com. Um, my work is all housed there. Um, I also have uh, professional websites, you know, like through the university, through Duke. I, I am on Twitter. That is my main social media platform. I don't dabble in the others, but I spend way too much time on Twitter. And I'm at Damn. Tracy underscore Canada. Um, and I think work-wise, like what I what I try to do with my work is to to write in spaces that is that are accessible to people outside of the academy. And so you'll see on my website that where I try to publish at least like long form or short form essays. Um, are in, in places that can be accessed without a paywall uh, and they're not gatekeeped yeah. by the academy in a particular way. So if you want to read any of my work, a lot of it can be found online and you don't need to have access to it. But if you can't get access, to, like you, you don't need to be given access to it. But if you can't get something, like feel free to reach out. Um, my email address is on the website too and I will happily send you a copy of something. Yay. Yeah, and that's something else that I really like about your work is like that sort of, uh, that it is meant to be it feels like it's meant to be read. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's meant to like be like so sort of much anthropology. <laughs> yeah. Like there, there absolutely is plenty of writing that was like, the point was to produce mm-hmm. um, hmm. and to sort of gift the world with mm-hmm. one's, mm-hmm. one's knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, but I do, um, that commitment definitely comes through to me as somebody who's, um, you know, ex- experience and expertise what I have of it lies elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so this is a really great way to, I don't want to give the impression, it's not entry level or anything, yeah. but it is accessible yeah. that, that people who are, um, who, who are interested, but, but not necessarily um, versed in, in jargon or um, overly complex sentence structure, mm. convoluted <laughs> sentence structure. <laughs> like it's something that, um, so yeah. So I definitely recommend that folks, um, check out your work. And Thank you. I to those fr- from those of us who don't currently have institutional subscriptions to mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Like, Thank you. Much like that matters, right? Like being yeah, able exactly. to read the yeah. stuff that's out there, I think matters. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> it matters. Uh, thank you again so much for coming on the show. This was really fun. Thank y'all. This was really fun. And, yeah. And thanks for spending part of your evening. Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah. And thank you <laughs> listeners for listening. We'll be back in your ears soon with more content, which you can find on our website, thedirtpod.com, along with all of our merch and our syllabus for educators and so much more. You can also find us on social media. Um, on Facebook, you can find us at the Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram, we're at the Dirt Pod. Thanks, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.